So to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, the text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we'll begin reading from uh, verse 1 through verse 10. This also is God's holy word. And you were dead in the trespasses and and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we go to our God together in prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for describing to us what you did in our behalf, that your intervention in our lives is exactly what we needed. Father, we thank you that if it were not for your intervention, that we would have been lost, that the torrent would have swept us away, that we would have been consumed by our enemies, that we would have been consumed by ourselves. Father, we thank you for so great a salvation that you show us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you saved us by a great deliverance. And Father, we acknowledge that salvation is not you helping us to save ourselves. No way. Father, that salvation is you from beginning to end saving your people. Father, we thank you that through all of it, we come to realize uh, the depth of our own sin, our own helplessness, and we come to understand your greatness and your glory that Jesus indeed would be high and lifted up, that we have in him a perfect and a mighty Savior. Father, we pray that if any are here who have, who have not committed their lives to Jesus Christ, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work of transformation. We thank you, Father, for your power that's manifested in raising dead men from the dead. We thank you, Father, that you are the one, you alone, that you give new life. We pray, Father, that Jesus, your son, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> children, how often is it, when I say children, I mean those of you who have parents, how often is it, uh, whether or not you're three years old, or whether or not you're ten years old, or whether or not you're fifty years old, that uh, children like to be able to get things done on their own. 
and that parents are often looking over the shoulder of their children, wondering, hey, I wonder when this one is going to ask for help. And children perhaps are thinking to themselves, we are not need, in need of help. We're going to do it all by ourselves. We'll get it done on our own. Perhaps it gets so bad that, uh, that the child starts to wonder, oh, hey, when is someone going to help me here? Isn't it obvious I'm in need of help? And, and don't, don't bring me to the place where I have to ask for help because that's going to be shameful. It would be like, oh, oh yeah, I just, I just it'll give you an extra hand. And perhaps at times, we think of salvation, God's intervention, in the same way. Hey, I, I, I'm just, I'm not wanting to admit that I'm in need of help, God. Can you just kind of jump in and give me a hand here? No, no, no. This, this is not the view of salvation that we ought to have. That God intervenes, right? He interrupts our lives, right, when we think we're completely fine on our own. It's not as if we needed a little help from our friends and God just stepped in there and gave us a little boost. They hear, we wanted nothing to do with God. That God interrupted our lives. And anyone who's had uh, any type of major interruption, perhaps you could understand that this is the best interruption that we could have. It's the interruption that we needed. It's the, it, it's the intervention that we needed. And that... This was, no, this was no unwelcome interruption in the sense that how much it is we appreciate this interruption from our God. Exhausted of all our abilities, exhausted of, of our lives in the world, exhausted of living in sin and misery. But our Lord is the one who intervenes. He intervenes not because he's obligated to, but because he loves us with a great love. Here, we ought to understand the importance of the role of Jesus Christ. Ephesians presents him as the glorious Savior, and he speaks about his love for his bride, the church. Here, we saw earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, the description about how we cannot stop exalting the Lord our God, that there is God's great plan of salvation. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it's as if the Apostle Paul is coming back and saying, hey, just so that you understand, it's not as if this was a great plan in theory, that this great plan is manifested in practice. That God doesn't just have grand plans that sinners would be saved. Here in Ephesians 2, he shows us that he finds not the best in the world, no, he finds even the worst, and that he indeed does save. He brings us out of death and into life. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we learn here that God intervened graciously to save dead men due to his own initiative and motivated by his mercy and love. God intervened graciously to save dead men due to his own initiative and motivated by his mercy and love. We'll look at this in three points. The first is God's character and intervention. Second, man's demerits and helplessness. And third, spiritual life by grace. So the first point, God's character and intervention in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So last week we covered Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And we called that the bad news. 
that we will revisit this because Paul, uh, Paul himself revisits it again in, in the first part of verse 5 regarding man's demerits and his helplessness. So we'll, we'll cover that more. But here, what I want to mention is that we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That he wants us to understand, that the Lord wants us to understand. It's not as if he chooses the very best uh, of, of sinful humanity to save. In fact, the Lord is one who shows us, in, in the example of the Apostle Paul, that he picks the very worst. So that we might understand that God is not, he's not weak, he is, he is not helpless in order to save sinners. That he takes even the very worst and he shows them as objects of his mercy. So by nature, children of wrath, meaning that we are no different than those who are unsaved. There's, there's nothing in substance that makes us any different or better. That it's a requirement that we understand such a thing if we are to understand how great God's salvation is towards sinners. He didn't save us because we were better. And that's what we need to understand. Here we also understand his intervention. In verse 4, we have the statement, but God. Here, I, I recall that there have been famous preachers who have preached an entire sermon on these two words, but God. And what we ought to understand here is that God made all the difference. Notice that it doesn't say, but man. As, as if you get to this point where you decide, you know what, why am I continuing to do this? I'm, I'm going to turn a new leaf. Right? I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, there's no such thing as that. That it's, it's not but man, that suddenly man realized how bad of a state he was in and that he had to help himself. No, this was God's intervention. For us, there was no hope. There were no options remaining. If you think about it, from the perspective of football or basketball, we had no, no more timeouts, right? You think about how at the end of a basketball game, toward the end, right? The basketball game, hey, everything's just kind of, uh, you, you, go, you go get the hot dogs and the popcorn until like the last maybe like five or three minutes, right? If it's close, then, you know, it's, it's a fun game to watch. And if it's not close, well, hey, you can just keep eating your hot dogs and popcorn, right? And so, same with football. And then they try to foul people and they, they, they have all these timeouts. They try to play. There's no more timeouts. There's no more options remain. There's no hope. And this is when God intervenes. And he intervenes not out of obligation. It's not as if he's required to. It's not as if, hey, God, you owe this to us. No one can claim that. No one should claim that. God is not required to intervene. We read earlier in Psalm 124, in verses 1 and 2, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us. Here, the, the psalmist David is, is trying to get the people to repeat after him. Here he's saying, hey, repeat after me. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, he, he's wanting them to realize, hey, I want you to come to the same conclusion that I have. That the only possible outcome is your destruction. He comes to that in verses 3 through 5 in, in Psalm 124. 
then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Think about the descriptions that that David is giving here. They would have swallowed us up alive. We would have been swept away. The torrent would have gone over us. Over us would have gone the raging waters. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to drown? It would be no fun to drown. And here he's giving that description. It's almost as if he's describing what uh, the Egyptians experienced at the Red Sea when when the, the walls of water came crashing down on these men. And what we ought to understand is if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, there would have been certain destruction for us, certain judgment. Think for a moment. If you have time, go back and read 2 Samuel. For Samuel, we have an account of David and his life, of, of Saul, who was, who, was, uh, who was chosen as the ideal king. He looked the part. He was tall, dark, and handsome, except he wasn't faithful. That was the problem. And then, then you have David, God setting aside David, and, and that there was much hardship in David's life, that he was anointed, yet he didn't, he didn't take He didn't take the throne for many, many years. And then in 2 Samuel, we have an account of the establishing of his rule, first in Hebron and then in Jerusalem. And then things seemed to be peaceful. You know, David seemed to be more advanced in age. And bam, he gets hit in there in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you go back and read it, you have this contrast. You, You read 2 Samuel 11. It's the account of his sin of adultery and murder. And then in 2 Samuel 12, you have these faithful words. You look throughout 2 Samuel 11. Notice how often David is sending. So, so David sends. He, he sees Bathsheba. He sends for her. Right? He has relations with her. Then she sends and says, hey, I'm pregnant. Then David sends for Joab. Then David sends for Uriah. And then after uh, Uriah is killed, David sends for Bathsheba to bring her into his house. So you see, David is active. He's sending. And then you have that stark contrast at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Those words, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. It's as if it's the very description of this but God being rich in mercy. We, we know that it seemed as if David was converted already. He, he was one who loved the Lord. But very much the same way. You look at David in his life. He was sending. He was active. He was doing all these things. And, and then it seemed as if God is passive. Yet he, he's not passive. And then the beginning of chapter 12. There's this transition. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. God is the one who meets us where we are. And if it wasn't for that, what would have happened? You think about God's intervention, how necessary it is. The basis of his intervention for us is his character. Here in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God is rich in mercy. 
He's not only ri- he's not only merciful, but he's rich in mercy. Mercy is God does not give you the punishment, the wrath, the judgment that you deserve. So the very the very treatment that we deserve, God does not give to us. That's his mercy. This is the very character of God that Jonah was literally afraid of. He despised it because Jonah was told, go to the Ninevites, these Assyrians. They were the hated enemies of the Israelites. And Jonah later told God, I know exactly the way that you are. You're patient and long-suffering. You're merciful. And your steadfast love extends to sinners. This is the very thing he was afraid of. Because he says, I want to see my enemies burn. I want to see them suffer and die. This is Jonah's statement in, in 4, chapter 2. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here, this is Joan admitting, you are merciful. This is why I did not want to bring this message to my enemies. In Hebrew, in Hebrew we have this mercy. You think about concepts, rarely, rarely are concepts uh, covered by just one word. So this mercy or covenant faithfulness or steadfast love, this is for God his love that is willing to be bound by covenant. Perhaps for you men, it's the concept, uh, if you love her, put a ring on it, right? Put a ring on her, right? There's there's a willingness to be bound by covenant. It spells the difference between God's ways with Saul and God's ways with David, right? 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have the difference is that God's favor left Saul. It wasn't, it wasn't secured by covenant. And when you look at what, what Saul did, Saul did not wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifice, but he offered the sacrifice on his own. And, and then what we have is God is saying, hey, the kingdom will be torn from you. So you look at what Saul did, and you look at what David did. Wasn't David's sin, if anything, far worse? He committed adultery and murder. So Saul hastily offered up the sacrifice on his own. But what we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that God's favor to David would not depart as it departed from Saul. That this is a love and mercy that is secured by covenant. Here... I, I see also the, the phrase that was mentioned earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 that God lavished on us his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That this is, describes the very richness of his mercy, the richness of his grace. It's not a trickle. It's not just a little drip, drip, drip at a time, but it's, it's a wave. It's lavished upon us. And so I ask you, regarding God's, God's mercy, has God treated you as your sins deserve? Perhaps you and I should come to that conclusion 
and that candid admission that he's, he's treated us far, far better than what our sins deserve because he's shown us his great mercy to us in Jesus Christ. There's also this great love with which he loved us. This great love with which he loved us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the admission later there in 1 John 4, that we love because God first loved us. He's the initiator, right? He's the one who started. He's the one who intervened. The same love is described in Romans chapter 5, in a very similar passage, Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here, this love is manifested in that Christ didn't die for people who were generally good. He died for people who are sinners. That God didn't wait until things improved in our lives to offer us salvation. He found us at our worst. Perhaps some of us have a little inkling of hesitation. But but we, we hear so many of these people who misrepresent the gospel or don't have a balanced view of the gospel. They constantly talk about God's love. So, you know, we, we, we can't put too much weight on God's love. We, we, can't, we can't think that God's love is that great. Well, well, why are you letting people who falsely represent God to negatively affect your view of God? Me, meaning that we... The love of God indeed is great. And just because someone else misrepresents it doesn't mean that his love ceases to be great. There is the great love by which he loved us. That cannot change. That is always true. The proof of it is in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to die on behalf of sinners. Here the proper response. Proper response then. We have an account of it in, in Psalm 124. In verse 6, Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. That the proper response in coming to understand God's intervention on behalf of sinners, for you and for me, is that we would bless His holy name. That God spared us, that we would not be prey for their teeth. This involves gratitude on our part. That God intervened in your life. That anyone who understands the greatness of this intervention will never say, you know what, I wish you intervened in my life later. There were things I wanted to accomplish, things I wanted to enjoy, uh, success I wanted to pursue, God, give me another 10 years, give me another 20 years, and then intervene. No one says that, understanding the goodness of God's intervention. So, let me ask you, what do you say about God's intervention in your life? Are you going to claim that you were doing fine on your own? Hey, I had everything under control, God. <laughs> if only you gave me enough time, I would have, I would have managed it. 
Are you even as impudent to think that God's intervention was helpful? Yes, it was needed. It was good. It was helpful, but it wasn't necessary. This is far from the truth. It was necessary. It was helpful. And if we did not have it, we would be destroyed. So this is the first point, God's character and intervention. We have the second point, man's demerits and helplessness. The first half of verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here, verse 5, uh, first half of verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, is kind of a, a summary he, he gives of the first uh, three verses of chapter 1. You were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He, here the Apostle Paul describes this spiritual deadness. That once living in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. So carrying out uh, sensuality and carrying out the, the pride of our own mind. And spiritually dead, meaning utterly devoid of communion with God. There is, there is no cell in, in a sinner's body, a one who is unregenerate. There's no cell that is submissive to the Lord, devoid of communion with God. This is at, en- at enmity with God, despising his name and everything about him. Here, this is the mark that people notice. Someone who is a believer, someone's not a believer. The difference is that when you speak to them about spiritual things, perhaps even as you're uh, talking about God's mighty work in, in your life, talking to an unbeliever, it seems as if they, they cannot end the conversation with you fast enough. It's, it's like when we go to a party and they find out that I'm a minister. Then it's as if... It's, it's worse than having COVID. It's, it's, as if I, it's as if I have leprosy. They, they can't get away from me fast enough, right? Because they're afraid of, of what I might say next. And, and here we, we ought to understand that this, this is the very way that sinners are, being spiritually dead, right? When you, when you talk, talk to them about uh, the, the life that you once had and how you had no joy in the things of this world that, that they could not satisfy. And then... The true satisfaction that you have in Jesus is as if they're ready to change the subject, right? Talk about the weather, the Vikings, whoever. Here, Jesus is the one who saves you from the wrath to come. In fact, we can think of it as Jesus saves you from your own self-destruction. That he saves us from ourselves. That in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we have the description of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're all opposing us. But what we can't underestimate is that there is our own flesh. And if left to ourselves, you, you think about the, the, the world and the devil, if they weren't involved, we, we'd still have our own, we'd still be our own worst enemies. Yet God saves us from our own self-destruction. So that's the spiritual deadness. Then there's the being enamored with the world and its sinful ways. There in verse 2. In which you once walked following the course of this world. One who is devoid of the spirit. 
is a lover of the world. And this being in love with the world means that we are those who fear man. Understand that this fear of man is not something that merely gets shut off when you become a Christian. It it doesn't actually get shut off. What what really changes is that the the fear of man uh, begins to be displaced by a greater fear of God. You realize that, that that even as you mature in Christ, there, there still will be that fear of man. But what develops in you is a greater fear of God. And it displaces. You, you come to realize that what, what's not in front of you, what you don't see, the effect of God in your life, is that you begin to have a greater fear of him. And it displaces the fear that you have of the world. So here, being enamored by the world's ways and following the world's ways. And then the other, the third thing is being enslaved to Satan. The spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Psalm 124 verse 7 describes it. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. It's not as if we figured out how to pick the lock and we escape is Jesus sets us free from Satan's fowler snare. That Jesus is the one who frees us from Satan's captivity. God is one who frees men from Satan with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world sees the gospel as bondage. Hey, why do you want to follow these rules. Why do you need to submit and bow the knee to Jesus when you can live your own way? You realize Satan will always have a deception. He will always have an answer regarding the truths of the gospel. He will try to change it. The reality is that the gospel is what sets you free. Satan is true bondage. The world is slavery. Your own sins, that is slavery. Jesus sets you free with the good news of the gospel and that he promises sinners true forgiveness and eternal life. This is what sets us free. Here, I used the word earlier, describe man. One is his demerits. There's no boast. Merit is excluded. And then the other word, helplessness. That man is completely unable to save himself. He's completely unable to do anything uh, that is pleasing to God. Is this a fitting word to describe you in your spiritual state before Christ? Helplessness. Do you find yourself insulted by my statement? Hey, what is this man saying that I'm helpless? Here... You think about the way that man can respond. When we speak about the good news of the gospel, you think about how men can revile even the free offer, revile the, the condition that we're in. People can say, sinners can say, I refuse to believe in a God who would force me to humble myself to the dust. Well, the truth is, you and I are already humbled to the dust in our own sin. All he's doing is revealing to us what we are, what we have. 
without Him. And if, if there's a problem with that, then of course, someone will say, that's not for me. That good news, that's not good news, that's bad news, I don't want it. And here, what we understand is that coming to understand our own helplessness, this is why we would say, we need a Savior. And His name is Jesus. And that while I am helpless, He is all-powerful to raise me from the dust. That He raises us up. Where then is your boasting? Your boasting is eliminated. But strangely, it seems as if any which way you turn, any way which you look, sinners are always able to find something for which they can boast. But God's design in the gospel is that your boasting, that my boasting would be eliminated. So this is the second point, man's demerits and helplessness. We have the third point, spiritual life by grace, in the latter half of verse 5. So God is the one who made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Here we have two descriptions uh, regarding the effect of God's intervention. The first is uh, being made alive together with Christ. And the second is, by grace, you have been saved. Here, made alive together with Christ. The implication is that before God's intervention, you and I were dead, spiritually dead. And we also see here the importance that God didn't just make us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. But the, the together with Christ cannot be separated, cannot be truncated, right? That our life is in Christ. Outside of him, there is no life. It's never independent of Him. It's only in Him. It's only in Christ that you and I have spiritual life. This being made alive, we have in John 3 that, that description about regeneration. God's act of giving new life to spiritually dead sinners. And this regeneration, it's of most importance that we understand that regeneration is not God cooperating with man or man cooperating with God. It's, not, it's an act of God alone. Just as no one decided I'm going to be physically conceived. Right? It's, it sounds ludicrous that a man decides, hey, I'm going to be physically conceived. No one decides that. In the same way, we see the parallel that for spiritual birth, it's never the result of someone's own decision or will. It's God's act and his act alone. So Jesus' statement to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7, you must be born again, you realize that's not a command. Jesus is not saying to Nicodemus, go, be born again. He's not saying that. He's saying there's a necessity. It's not a command, though. It's the work of God. Here, the description about being saved by grace. It's a description, and the saving there is that of a perfect. The tense is perfect. Having been saved. You see the difference. It's not a future. Eventually you will be saved. It's saying having been saved. We think about this mercy. We think about this grace. How are they different? How are they the same? Here, grace then, 
Grace then we understand as unmerited favor when only wrath was rightly deserved. So we rightly deserve God's wrath. This is, what, this is a just condemnation upon us. Right? We ask ourselves, if we come to understand the gospel, we come to understand that what you and I deserve is God's wrath. We can't claim anything better. And that when we don't get his wrath, but we get his favor, his exceedingly great favor, then we say, that's God's grace to us. We haven't earned his favor. He freely gave it to us. We didn't receive his wrath. That's mercy. And that grace then is contrasted with works. Romans 4, 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, that it's by grace, it means it's not by works. That your salvation is by grace, it means that it is by faith. Because God makes the promise. The promise is that sinners who embrace the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ will be forgiven will receive eternal life. We will trust God that when he says he will do it, he will. And this is believing God at his promise. And there's nothing meritorious in that. Salvation that comes from God. When is that given? Is that something that it's off in the future someplace? Is is your spiritual state on the rocks and then one day God decides, oh, yeah, I'll give it to you eventually. It's, it's like the, the teacher who, who's already given his students A's, right? So he doesn't tell them, though, before the beginning of the class, hey, I've already decided I'm going to give all these students A's, right? And then he lets them get through their class, get through their midterms, all their papers, and then the final. And then, and then these, these students get their exams back and they say oh man I, I got a 72 out of 100 the other guy says oh I got a 50 out of 100 you know it depends some, some classes a 50 out of 100 on a curve right? it could be actually be an A right? but, but hey, they're, they're fearful and then he says oh by the way you know what I'm going to give you all A's and, and you say hey why, why didn't you tell him that so we, we wouldn't have uh, anyway all, all that to say you look at what God does right? it's not like he, he wants you to, to think he wants you to grovel. He wants you to be in fear and in doubt. And, and he wants you to think that somehow you need to work harder to earn it. No. He tells you up front that all who believe pass from death to life. That you actually receive salvation. That he promises that to you. You pass from death to life. That the condemnation that was once on you is no more. And that this is good for people. This is good for God's people. That we might understand that salvation he already freely gives to us in Jesus Christ. Here, the boasting then is eliminated. And that you and I ought to be reminded that salvation is not of us. Salvation is of the Lord. That you must receive the salvation that Jesus freely offers to you. And you must receive it on his terms. Right here, when you think about the, the offers of the credit card, right? These are the terms. This is how much you have to pay in terms of interest, right? No one takes it and says, hey, I will cut that interest rate in half, right? So also, you think about God's offer of salvation. This is not negotiating the terms. There's no equality with God, 
right? He lays down the terms. The terms are favorable to us because he is gracious. And we freely, we freely receive the terms as he gives it to us. And in that, we give thanks and we praise to him. Let we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, that you indeed are...